few weeks ago, I had the distinct privilege of being here and just sharing my heart about uh, what happened with Puerto Rico and the Hurricane Maria. Uh, today, I would just like to report with you uh, what we have been able to do after our two-week campaign and what I have learned from God uh, as a result of this. You see, when, when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, although I was here in Kentucky, I felt it. And I asked God, why am I over here when I should be over there helping, doing something? But God had something for me to do here as well. And in God's providence, he has something for you to do wherever you are. So, although I didn't know what I was getting myself into, I didn't know I was attempting something big, um, or what would be the end result, God was urging me on, don't worry about the results, just do as I say. And I think if God is speaking to you in such a way also, just go forward in faith. Uh, that's what I did, and so we got together, we had a, a group of people in the community formations office, and that was amazing. I've never worked with such uh, an amazing, efficient group of leaders and uh, Christians before, uh, working for a cause that was so dear to me. Uh, that was really touching how everyone got together and started helping. I even saw little children uh, bring their offerings uh, at, the, uh, at the student center, and um, I was really touched. Yet towards the end of our campaign, um, I asked how much we had gathered, and they said, well, we have gathered in our part about $1,300, and we needed to get at least 6,000 if we wanted to send those hundreds of solar lanterns, water filters, and other basic necessities. I, I was thankful for that, but I was honestly somewhat discouraged. I thought, well, okay, maybe it wasn't as much as we thought. But uh, that night, I gathered my family and we prayed, and ever since that time my, my my son has been praying every day for people in Puerto Rico and we left it at that and we just left it in God's hands and I think that there is no other better place to be at than knowing that you have done your best and just leaving the rest to God and so next Monday I went over to the community formations office to find out um, how much we had and, and so that I could purchase the material to send to Puerto Rico and, uh, and then I, I saw the excitement. They said, look, they've kept on sending us things. Here's a box. Here's a $500 check. And I'm like, well, so how much was it? And they said, well, with these things, we're close to $8,000. I was like, what? <laughs> my, my face lifted. I, I began to sing hallelujah in my heart. And I thought, how did this happen? I just left it in God's hands. And the total amount that we needed was collected in just a weekend. Uh, I just thought, this is an amazing testimony. My mother has immediately, has already confirmed that she has received the, um, the materials and immediately went to work distributing them, beginning with our very own students in our institution who, and staff members who still don't have water or electricity, like my mom still doesn't have water or electricity, even to this day. So this has been helpful, and, and I praise God for what is happening. I do believe there's more we can do, but I want to stop, and I think it's necessary that we do this, to stop at a juncture and just celebrate what God has done. Amen? 
And so I just want to reflect with you what I have learned through this experience. And there are three testimonies briefly that I'd like to uh, mention. One is that our problems are God's opportunities for success. Number two is that prayer moves the hand that moves the world. And number three is that I am not alone. I have a family here at Asbury Seminary. And so let me begin with how our problems are God's opportunity. This reminds me of, of the story of the uh, book of Acts um, in chapter 11 when Agabus and several other prophets went to Antioch and prophesied that there was going to be a massive famine in the land of Israel. And immediately the Christians in Antioch, the Center for Gentile Missions, sent a delegation bringing relief funds to the church in Jerusalem, the center of heritage. So what would have been a disaster, and indeed it was. Luke chapter 21, 11 says that it was one of the signs of the end, right? But they used that as a sign that the kingdom of God was present as well. So the believers have an opportunity in every problem to show the love of God. And so it is indeed not just a problem, but God's opportunity to be glorified through us. Number two, prayer moves the hand that moves the world, as I just shared. Um, I'm sure you also have experienced uh, God's amazing providence in answer direct to prayer. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is that faith in prayer must grow if it is living. So like a seed, it must continue to expand. So if, if God has provided $7,000 at this time, I am encouraged that next time I will be daring to ask for more. Even when I don't see how he's going to do it. But faith indeed has to grow. And this nurturing relationship, this is not a magical formula. Obviously, this is a nurturing relationship with God that the more you trust him, uh, the more you can you can ask and believe that he will answer. Um, and I just wanted to share that this has been something that has been happening with me this year. When I began this year praying with a friend, I said I need to pray with somebody about a revival of primitive godliness in my own home, and I want to pray that also in your home and for Wilmore, because uh, revival is the greatest of all our needs, isn't it? <laughs> And so we began praying. He invited another friend. We prayed for an hour that day. And then I asked, when will we meet again? And his friend said, tomorrow. So we said, okay. The next day we prayed and we said, okay, when will we meet again? Tomorrow. And then the next day. And the next day. And we were praying like this every single day. My wife was beginning to get worried. Like, where are you going all these days? We were praying and God was doing amazing things, which I don't have time to relate today, except that I was invited to go to a Spanish church, and I shared this testimony about prayer in Lexington, and, and the Spanish church agreed that they also needed to pray. So they said, for 40 days, we're going to be praying at 5 in the morning. And so they prayed every day at 5 in the morning, and a friend of mine from Lexington said, what is happening in that church? 5 in the morning, every day I go to work, but the, the parking lot is packed. And, and, I, and I felt, you know, the Lord is doing a revival here in Lexington as an answer to prayer. And he's continuing to do it. They just asked me to preach a night vigil this coming Saturday as well in that church. So, yes, I challenge you. I say this to just encourage you to also form prayer bands because it is prayer that moves the hand that moves the world.
And finally, I just want to say that I'm not alone. I have a family here at Asbury Seminary. And I, know, I knew it from the very beginning. However, when, when I first came, coming from a Latino background, uh, where a lot of people are Catholic and um, evangelicals and, and Seventh-day Adventists, as I am, are seen as heretics, <laughs> um, it was hard for me to think, okay, I know I, uh, our soteriology is deeply Wesleyan and Armenian, but will my views of, of Sabbath and, um, and the vision of the end uh, keep me from being united and, and, and having fellowship with, with this brethren, this body of believers? And the answer is, I am absolutely a member of this community. As, as we, we were um, passing out this um, information about helping Puerto Rico, uh, one of the professors says, we are doing this for our sister institution in Puerto Rico. And that just touched my heart. I, I thought, sister institution, this is what we are. We are, we are family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And, um, and I see that I am invited to the table, and I believe that you too should be invited to the table here at Asbury Seminary. But we are a community called so it's not just, you know, some professors who, like skilled chefs, provide the catering for everyone to eat the doctrines that they have to teach. But we each, like a potluck, bring something to the table and share from our own experiences. And when we hear each other's experiences, as we're doing today, we realize that we are not alone, that we are not just our faith, is not just ourselves. We are part of something bigger that we would not have understood if we did not listen to someone else's experience. And so I perhaps might have some interesting things to say um, about, you know, my healthful lifestyle or about how my Sabbath frees me from the shackles of my study carol or perhaps from how my vision in apocalyptic eschatology drives my mission Yet I have come to listen to you, to my family, to my brothers and sisters. And I hope you too can be able to say that you have a family here at Asbury Seminary. God bless. Well, my name is John, and I know a lot of you. And I'm here to share, well, they asked me to share my testimony, but I always feel awkward at that because my testimony is not the testimony of an individual. It's the celebration of a Christ whose premeditated actions and grace changed a life. I was a lucky individual. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents, my father was a pastor, and I grew up in that home. We were home missionaries in northern Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and moved around and did all those kinds of things. And church was great. I, I believed all the church stuff. But, you know, Jesus teaches that even the demons believe in him. And uh, I had a lot of head knowledge about Christ. I had a lot of head knowledge about church. I, I read some in the Bible. I went to all the programs. I did all those things. My family weren't hypocrites. They were good people. I, don't, uh, I can't blame them for the circumstances that happened in my life. But after graduating high school and moving out, I went to Texas. Now, this was a long time ago. Uh, over 30 years ago, and things were big in Texas at that time. It was booming, and everything was going on, and I entered Texas during that time and, uh, and went there with uh, my young wife at that time that we sort of had run off together and all of that, and we went to Texas, 
And uh, I spent the first uh, couple years there as a con man, a liar, a thief, okay? And I, and I made my living that way. Uh, but I had certain rules. I had grown up in a Christian home. I didn't steal from old people. And, uh, you know, if the family was too poor, I left them alone. I had, I had morals, you know. I, I did those things until the day the FBI knocked on the door. And I went to court and had a public defender. And uh, uh, I advise against that if you ever get in trouble. And we had worked out this uh, plea arrangement, and I was going to walk out. My father had come down from Kentucky to Texas that day, and that was the last time I was going to see him for a year and a half. Got before the judge, and I was supposed to be able to walk out of there, and the judge sentenced me to three years in prison that day, and my life changed dramatically at that moment. I watched my father walk out of the courtroom with his head down. I watched things change, and all my life's plans changed, and everybody else's plans for my life changed at that moment, and I was sent to prison in Texas. Now, if you're going to go to prison, I highly recommend you don't go there. But anyway... <clears throat> in Texas, and I'd been there now about six months, and I was bitter, I was angry, I was upset, I was blaming anybody and everything, constantly in trouble, and when you go to prison in Texas, you know when you're going to get out, because there's no parole system there, at least there wasn't in those days. If a judge wanted you to serve a certain time, he sentenced you to double that, because every time you did a day, you got a day off, and you met in the middle, and you got to go home. And so I was counting down the year and a half until I would get out. And six months into it, I decided to give God one more chance. I thought, okay, I'll go to chapel. <laughs> I'll go to chapel and just see what you have to say. Pretty arrogant thinking. I was going to give God one more chance. But I didn't listen carefully to the announcements that day. And when they announced for you to go, I went, left my cell, went down there to the Hispanic service. Now, you have to understand, if you're in prison in Texas... 35 years ago, Hispanic and white people kill each other. <laughs> and I show up at the Hispanic service and have to be led handcuffed hands and chains and the guards are laughing as they put me in the vehicle because they know I'm going to be dead when we get there. And I know I was going to be dead when we got there. And so the last thing I remember saying as I got onto the bus is, thanks God, you're some big help. <laughs> and I got in, but I did survive to the chapel. And I lived, and I don't know how I got there, and I remember getting against the wall. And the music started playing, and the preacher started preaching, and all those things, and I was just waiting for it. I didn't understand anything that was happening. I was just waiting for the fight, waiting for the moment when I wouldn't be around any longer, but I was going to take somebody with me when I went. And all of a sudden, this pastor said the word Christos, and it was like I was stabbed with a knife. I looked for the wound. It took me to my knees. And then the tears started flowing. I highly recommend not crying in prison. And the tears started flowing. And, and everybody just froze watching the white guy fall apart in the back. And the Hispanic guy kept coming closer, preaching more and harder at the white guy. And he said, Christos, again, it was like another knife wound. And at that moment, I didn't know what prevenient grace was in those days. But at that moment, I felt Christ for the first time. And things started to change for me immediately. And that man died that day. It took a while to bury him, but he died that day, and a new creature was created that day. 
And I'll never forget that moment. I didn't understand everything. All the head knowledge was worthless at that point. I had to learn what it meant to be a child of God. And so after that moment, God started working with me and started changing me. And I became a new creature, as uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Therefore, if anyone in Christ is a new creature. So now when I think about that and talk about that, it's like that's somebody else I'm talking about. That's a different person. I don't even know that guy anymore. After all these years, he's dead and gone, but Christ has created a new person in me. And I'm so grateful for that. I mean, so grateful. I couldn't even dream then about my life would be 30-some years later. All that God would allow me to be. All that God would allow me to happen. So anyway, I'm in prison, and, and that's during a period of overcrowding, okay? And so they're going to let people go. And every Friday, they lined all the prisoners up and went down the line. You get to go home, you get to go home, you get to go home. I never got to go home. And so God and I would have a long talk every Friday afternoon. Look, some of these people killed people, you know, and here I am. <laughs> I served every single minute of my time. Murderers got out before I got out. But I served every single day, and I'll never forget that night at midnight waiting to be released out into the streets, and they were checking me all over the places. And there were some things that could have gotten me that they never figured out and they never found. And I, I got out, and I had freedom for the first time. And the thing I celebrate in that verse, you know, when we read 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, you know, I'm a new creature. I've become a new person in Christ. But it starts with therefore. And I've learned that anytime it says therefore, you ought to look why it's therefore. And when you go back in the chapter, it talks about the Christ that I serve, the Christ that's a part of my life now. You know, that how I have to be compelled by him and his love for me to change things for me. I mean, who would have ever thought he would call me to ministry, you know, to be a minister? And when I left, uh, my first job was youth ministry. After I got out of prison, some crazy church hired me <laughs> to be a youth person. And I was a youth person for 20-something years. And then God called me to be a pastor. And I know you're here uh, serving in seminary and you're training for that, but let me tell you, the calling to be a pastor is the most wonderful calling there is on earth. Because you get to be with people when the peace that passes all understanding comes. You get to hold their hands in that last moment of life when God fulfills his promises with them. You get to be there in the joyous times. And yes, there's some bad committee meetings coming or things like that. But trust me, there's worse people than PPR people in the world. I've lived with them, okay? I know there's bad people. But we can celebrate that in your life, Christ has premeditated a plan. And he's connecting dots so you can serve him to his glory. And that's what we're thankful for. That's what I praise him for. I mean, I'm 52 in seminary because of Bishop Gwynn convincing me to come here. I'm doing all these things. got a family new because Christ premeditated my life. And in my darkest moment... He was able. And at your darkest moment, he'll be able. Thank you. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about the Christmas carols and hymns that we sing and how rich and truth-filled the lyrics are. Lines like, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Or, Mild he lays his glory by, Born that men no more may die. I've been thinking about this lately because, of course, we're approaching Christmas time. 
But I'm also nearing another significant date in my life. Next week is the 25th anniversary of my dad's death. On December 19, 1992, when I was six years old, my dad's pickup truck slammed into a train that was parked across a highway. He was killed instantly. When the church people came over the next morning, they found my mother wandering around the house saying, this is a bunch of crap. This is a bunch of crap. Only, of course, she didn't say crap because when you're a 27-year-old who has just become a widow with three small children, the word crap doesn't quite cover. The church people said, we'll pray for you. My mom said, you can pray for me, but this is still a bunch of crap. And it was, it was a bunch of crap. There was not one aspect of the entire situation that did not seem utterly drenched in it. The crap storm hit us with such violence that it left splatters throughout our lives. Sometimes we still find ourselves cleaning up the residue, even all these years later. When I went back to kindergarten after the Christmas break, I stood up and I announced to the entire class that no, I had not received everything I wanted for Christmas. All I had asked for was that my family be kept safe. And instead, I had spent part of my break attending my father's funeral. At the time, we were living in a run-down, mouse-infested farmhouse. The upstairs was caving in and my parents had no money. But hanging on the fridge was a piece of paper with part of Hebrews 13.5 written on it. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Over the past 25 years, God has been teaching me what this promise means. I've been thinking about God's presence with me a lot lately. Sometimes I look at the candles and the Christmas lights, and it's easy for me to think about Jesus coming to be with us in sort of a pretty, isn't that nice kind of way. Emmanuel, God with us, but sort of at arm's length, maybe on stage or in a special pew with all the fancy people or behind some protective glass or something. But the way that I've experienced his presence in my life has been more like spending time with someone who knows what I'm going through. Not only that, but someone who has actually experienced it himself. Someone who knows what it is to mourn over death. Someone who's so close to me that the blood and sweat and tears and snot that's on me is on him too. The journey toward healing has been long and winding and has looked different at various stages of my life as issues related to my dad's death affected me in different ways as the years passed. Sometimes God's with-me-ness took the form of him keeping me from making bad decisions or acting out my pain in a destructive way. And even if I had, his with-ness would have looked like loving me, still holding me, unafraid of my dirt. Other times it looked like him placing truth into my heart and mind about my value and worth as a person, about my belovedness, truth that defied the emotions I was feeling at that moment. Now this is not to say that I was always even aware of God's presence with me. Some things come with distance and hindsight. I did not walk around saying pleasantly, ah well, the Lord is with me, I shall carry on gracefully. Like I said, the whole thing was a crap storm. 
In the midst of the crap storms, many of the pretty promises that people tend to embrace sound like noisy gongs or clanging cymbals, painful to our ears. The ones about God using things for good or about his good plans for us or that God is going to use this experience to teach us a lesson, those sorts of things. The only thing that seems to be left, the only promise that seems to make sense is the promise that God is with me. There have certainly been other crap storms in my life, deaths of people I love, cancer treatments, and life disappointments. At some point, I stopped I have learned to stop asking why certain things have happened to me in life, or at least to ask why on a less frequent basis. Perhaps this is one of the most valuable parts of being 25 years removed from a traumatic situation. Why a thing happened becomes less important. My story is not that bad things have happened. My story is that God was with me in them. With me so closely that the filth and tears and snot that were covering me were on him too. And this does not apply to only the major life-defining moments. I have learned that his presence is with me when I am curled up in my bed in a ball of anxiety. I have felt his presence with me when I am encountering a ministry situation that seems far too difficult for me to deal with. There have been times this semester when my OCD has felt so completely overwhelming and exhausting, and yet I have sensed the hand of Jesus upon me without a trace of condemnation, saying, breathe. There is not one aspect of my entire life's experience that God's witness does not cover. My dad's death happened because we live in a world where death is a reality. But at Christmas, we celebrate life. When I think about Christmas the way that it is often portrayed in popular culture as this fluffy time of perfect families and perfect experiences, the whole thing can come off as kind of depressing and sad. Because for parts of my life, a fully warm and fuzzy Christmas was not my reality. Rather, over the years, this time has often been a difficult time of processing and mourning and remembering and comparing what others have to what I do not. But recently, the Lord has been giving me a deeper appreciation for the Christmas season and helping me to view it in a new way. Not as a time of fluffiness and sentiment, but rather as a time to celebrate that God came down to be with us, to be with me, to walk in the mud and the muck and the crap and help me walk through it as well. This year, as I remember that time of deep mourning in my life, I celebrate that Jesus comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found, far as the crap is found. Hallelujah. <laughs>